All right, good morning, Story family here in the Museum District of Houston, Texas. Good to see y'all. Hope y'all are doing well. And I want to say good morning as well to our, our campus over in Timber Grove at 8200 Washington Avenue in the Heights that's meeting right now. And also those of you that are joining us online, whether it's, uh, you know, the weather this morning that kept you home or maybe you're out of town, wherever you are and whatever the circumstances are, you're part of the story today by virtue of tuning in in this, uh, in this way at this time. So really grateful to all of you for being here. Hope y'all are doing good. Had some weird weather this week in Houston. Hope everybody survived the heat and then the freezing and then the flooding and then whatever else happened in the last seven days in Houston. It's wild, but it's Houston, baby. So uh, that's what we do. All right. So glad you're here, especially if you're new. Want to welcome you to the story. If, if you're visiting today or maybe you've been here a few times, you're still kind of kicking the tires on this church, or maybe you're kicking the tires on Christianity. I want you to know a couple of things today. I want you to know there's a place for you here. No matter um, where you're at on the journey, there, if you've got a bunch of questions, this is a great place to ask your questions about the Bible, about God and Jesus and Christianity. And um, this is a, a safe place to do that, and we would encourage you to do that because we think by asking questions and exploring our doubts, honestly, we go deeper in faith toward the truth, and, and that's what we're all about at the Story Church. All right, so today, y'all... Uh, you know, when you're a preacher, there are sermons that you want to preach, and then there are those that you have to preach. <laughs> Today's the latter. I'm going to be real with you. Today is definitely the latter. It is a, it's a message I have to preach. I don't want to. I'm scared to. I've been praying for the courage to preach this as it needs to be preached, not as I might want to, you know, tiptoe around it or soften it so that y'all will like me more and you won't leave my church and go find another church. They're nicer to you there. It's like the preachers avoid the topic like the one we're going to talk about today. Um, but this is, as far as Jesus is concerned, a life or death topic. All right. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And so I'm going to start now with just a short prayer. I invite you to pray with me. All right. So let's pray together. Lord, you know, I've been praying all week for courage, just the courage, um, not just to speak, but really the courage to get out of the way of what your word plainly says um, in this passage today. And so that's my prayer that uh, I would do that and we would all be courageous enough to listen with open ears, even if we might not always like what we hear, we might be offended or turned off by what we hear. Lord, help us to be patient and courageous enough to really just consider what we hear and the, the, the merits of it for our lives. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So you've got uh, two things I want you to pay attention to. First, study guides. When you came in, they gave you an eight and a half, 11 sheet of paper. And uh, the same for y'all at Timber Grove. And they will link to the document. If you're watching online in the comments section, you can link and find the digital version. I always mention that. That's especially important today, I think, because you're going to have some fun fill-in-the-blank work to do later. I know some of you OCD people like to fill in the blanks properly, and uh, so I'll try to make sure and hit every one of those. Uh, those are going to be on the back of your study guides. Also, the reading guides are on the back of your study guides. We're doing a daily reading of the Gospel of Luke as part of our 22-part series that we're today on part nine of. So this series is called A Physician and the Facts. This is by far the longest series we've ever done. It is a 22-week exploration of the gospel according to Luke. We love the gospel of Luke here because, well, he stands out among the Bible writers for a lot of reasons, not least of which he was a man of research. He was a medical doctor, a physician. He followed the facts where they led him, and the facts led him to Jesus. And so this is a, this is a really interesting 
phenomenon, especially considering Luke was not Jewish. All the other Bible writers were Jewish. Luke was not, all right? So today's topic is going to come from Luke chapter 6, verse uh, 17, is where we're going to begin. And Jesus, um, like your buddy might, if he had something hard to tell you, he says, essentially, I've got some good news and some bad news. And so we're going to explore both. We're going to start, we're going to do it in order. Jesus starts with the good news, and then he gets to the bad news. So let's tackle the good news first. Luke chapter 6, verse 17, all right? Uh, So this is Jesus. Jesus went down with them, so his following, and stood on a level place, on a plain, some of your Bibles might say. A large crowd of his disciples was there. And so that's not just the 12. Disciples, was anyone following Jesus at this point? So a large crowd of his disciples was there. And a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch Jesus because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, it's important, pay attention. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and reject your name as evil, I missed insult you, exclude you, insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, because of Jesus. Then he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So the prophets of old uh, were ridiculed and hated by the establishment, let's say, by normal people quote unquote, um, because they said the truth. They told the truth about God and about its judgment and people hated them for it. And so Jesus said, you want to be like that. You want to be hated for it. And when you're hated by this world because of Jesus, leap for joy, he says, have a party. And he says, you're blessed if that happens to you. You're blessed if you weep now. You're blessed if you are hungry now. And you're blessed if you're poor What? Like, that's the good news, right? And even that raises all kinds of questions. This is like, uh, blessed is like um, fortunate or lucky even. Like, lucky you for being poor. Like, that doesn't even make sense. If we were going to make a list like that, we wouldn't include these attributes in the lucky list, right? We would make a whole different, like, opposite list of people we consider fortunate, lucky or blessed, Right, But Jesus goes right after it. He minces no words. This is as plain as it can be. This is not symbolic or metaphorical. This is just plain spoken Jesus saying, you're blessed if you fit into these four categories. If, if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're, if, if you're mourning or heartbroken, or if you are excluded or hated on account of Jesus. What are we to make of this? I've always been taught God doesn't show partiality among groups of people. He doesn't love some groups more than others. I've always been taught he's no acceptor of persons. That's a passage I remember from early in my life. In other words, God doesn't play partisan politics like people do. 
That's what I've always been taught. But here, if you're not careful, you can read this in a way that would lead you to believe that God somehow has affection for or loves the poor more than he might the rich. And there are churches and pastors that teach this this way. I went to a seminary that taught this passage and other passages by interpreting it in this way. And I went to far left, theologically far left um, schools, right? And, uh, and the faculty there and the pastors that I followed in that time in my life, I wasn't really a Christian at that point in my life, but I was still in seminary. It's complicated. But I, anyway, I, I, I got the distinct impression throughout, throughout seminary that God has a preferential option or has preference for poor people, and that it is the job of the church to see that and to lift up the poor and to condemn the rich as if poverty itself is a virtue and wealth is a vice. And I want us to be very careful not to sidestep the plain truth of what Jesus is saying here while also recognizing that Jesus isn't saying that poverty is a virtue and wealth is a vice. Okay? Now, the other side of that, of that theological spectrum, if, if you're looking at like really Christian conservative sources, um, I read some commentaries on this passage this week from conservative voices that were like, well, Luke is paraphrasing Matthew's Sermon on the Mount here. And well, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's what Jesus really meant. Luke just, somebody coughed next to Luke when Jesus said in spirit, and he just put blessed are the poor. Simple as that, you know, clearly Jesus isn't saying you're blessed if you're poor. He's insinuating that you're blessed if you're humble. And so that's a convenient interpretation to say the least. Why would you interpret this passage that way? Because if you're a preacher, it's much easier to tell your rich congregants to become poor in spirit than it is to tell your rich congregants to become poor. Like no one wants to become poor, but poor in spirit, yeah, I can pull off humility. I've got some humility, yeah. It's like admitting that cancels you from being humble. But anyway, that's a different topic. All right, so it's complicated if you, if you look at it that way. I've been poor in my life at one point in my life, early, early on in my life. And again, went back to being poor when I got married for a few years. Gio and I were poor, technically speaking, below the poverty line and all that for a few years. And, and so, you know, my first home was a trailer home and, and when, I was a, when I was a baby in Red Lake, Texas. And to be poor in Red Lake is really poor. Like, I don't know how else to put it. But I've since then become rich. Not as rich as some of y'all but I'm Red Lick rich, all right? So I, I don't fit in at Red Lick anymore, but I don't quite fit in at River Oaks yet. It's like all these, these in-betweens, you know, that I'm walking, but I consider myself wealthy by the world standards, all right? And I think most of us should. Let's be honest with ourselves. Like we fit in the wealthy camp if it's split into rich and, and poor. And I, I'm not ashamed of, of being wealthy. And I don't think anyone should be ashamed of being wealthy and no one should be ashamed of or proud of being poor on the other hand, but if I were to choose between being wealthy and being poor, I'd choose wealthy every time. I know how both feel, and I like being wealthy more. <laughs> like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, everyone does, all right? Now, unfortunately, for rich Christians today, we don't get to choose between listening to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount or Luke's Sermon on the Plain. If you read them closely, there is no way... This is two versions or two interpretations of the same sermon. There's every reason to believe these are two different sermons. Believe it or not, Jesus preached a bunch 
Sometimes he preached different variations on the same message. I do it every Sunday from 8.30 to 9.45 to 11. It's like always a little different. And Jesus preached two different versions of a similar sermon. But in Luke's gospel, he just is as clear as he can be that those he's referring to as blessed are financially poor, physically hungry, emotionally sorrowful or heartbroken, right? And socially outcast, all right? So what does this mean? I think it means that people that are on in those categories have, if you're Christian, so the, it's not about a matter of salvation, to, to be saved is still a matter of having faith in Jesus, regardless of economics. But when you're a Christian and you are poor or hungry or, or, or you're heartbroken or rejected by the world, you have some kind of invisible advantages from heaven's perspective that Jesus is trying to encourage his folks to see here, right? So it's an invisible advantage that his followers who fit those categories or descriptions, uh, you know, could relate to. Okay, so um, when he said, for example, blessed are you poor, pay attention to the word you. Blessed are you hungry, who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. He's talking about his Christian followers, his hearers. So they're in Christ, they're with Christ, and he's telling them, you're with me and you're blessed because you have less, right? So he's speaking specifically to the church, telling them that they have an advantage. Why? Why would poor or hungry or heartbroken or rejected people have an advantage from heaven's perspective? I think it has something to do with the fact that those who go without in this life come to Jesus with more urgency. They come to the kingdom of God with more desperation. They need the promises of God to come true. And one day when they get to heaven, everything's going to be amazing because they know what it's like to go without. They have no sense of entitlement. They have not had the same kind of distractions that have held many of us back from fully embracing God and his promises. It's not, in other words, that God loves people who are poor more than he loves people who are rich. It's that Christians who are poor tend to love God more than Christians who are rich. That's the warning. That's for us. This is where Jesus is taking us. He's giving us a word of caution. Be careful about your affections for the things of this world and how they subtract from your affections for God. And that's why the, those who have less in heaven's view are blessed. All right? So I have this fear in the back of my mind that when I get to heaven, I'm going to be underwhelmed. I know it's weird. I don't think this is really what's going to happen. Once in a while, I realize how entitled I'm becoming, and I'm like, my Lord, when I get to heaven and, and they bring my food mild, when I ordered spicy, it's like, <laughs> or, or, or they bring you like, you know, your paradise pizza has like, has gluten and you're gluten-free. It's like, excuse me, angel. It's like, you want to talk to the manager in heaven? Like, because we're so deeply entitled like, I have a fear that heaven won't be as glorious because we've decided the world is glorious, right? And so this is, uh, this is the, the warning that's embedded in this good news. Um, so believe it or not, that part we just talked about is the good news. 
And now we're getting to the bad news, okay? So <laughs> buckle up, y'all. I'm about to offend some people where Jesus is. I just want to get out of the way. Just remember, it's, it's him, not me, okay? So this is the rest of what he said, Luke 6, verse 24 to 26. He said, but woe to you who are rich. Woe to you is a, is a, is a, a word of caution, to say the least. It's an expression that is like SOS, mayday, mayday, mayday. Like, like watch out is literally, I think, what it means. Watch out. Woe to you, careful, you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for this is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. So if everybody speaks well of you, they're treating you like the forefathers treated the false prophets. And that, what that means is like the real prophets would come along, like Jeremiah came along and said, judgment is coming. And everybody went like, shut up, Jeremiah. And the, the false prophets came along and said, no, it's not. You're good. We're good. God loves us. It's fine. Who do you think had the bigger audience when they spoke? The false prophets, right? Because they were the most popular religious uh, figures of their day. That seems to be True of every generation, by the way, of religious leaders. Just be careful. And religious leaders, be careful. Like if, if people like us too much, could be because we're not telling them the truth. That's tough for me to digest, but it's an, important, it's an important truth for us to hear. All right? So <clears throat> Jesus is saying, woe to you who are wealthy. This doesn't mean wealth is a sin. Doesn't mean to be wealthy is to be a sinner because of your wealth. Uh, there's plenty of biblical examples of wealthy people who were righteous, who blessed God with their wealth. Plenty of examples of poor people who were not, by the way. So it's not about like who's in and out with uh, God's kingdom or who's saved or who isn't. Jesus here is simply raising the red flag to wealthy believers who were listening to him then and who are listening to him now of the dangers that come along with wealth and comfort. And just like Christians who are poor and hungry and heartbroken and rejected have invisible advantages from heaven's point of view, Christians who are rich and full or well-fed and uh, Christians who are sort of satisfied with the world um, and, and well thought of with good reputations, we have invisible disadvantages I'm going to talk about what those might look like specifically in four categories. This is Jesus's four categories. If you saw, there were four blessed are used and four woe to use, right? And they, uh, they correlate. The first blessed and the first woe go together and so on and so on, right? And so when he does this, he, he addresses four areas of our, of our daily lives that I think hit home with every one of us. And the first area that he addresses is our affluence. Talked about this a little bit already, but let's just unpack it a little bit more. He talks specifically about our affluence, and he warns us about the dangers of it. So why? Why did he say, woe to you who are rich for you? What does he say? Woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort, as if to say you, you won't receive more. Why? Well, all I know is that Jesus talks more about the dangers of money then he talked about sex. Then he talked about like 
like faith even, there's more specific stories that he told, for example, parables about money than any other topic. He told 40 parables over, uh, like all told, 11 or 12 of them were about money specifically. That's a pretty high percentage. So why do you only hear from your preacher about money when he wants it from you? That's a self-own right there. If you're not aware of what just happened, I'm owning myself and every preacher who only talks about money when it's given time, when it's capital campaign season. Jesus talks about money all the time. Why? Because woe to you who are in the throes of your money. Woe to you who are being used and condemned by your own love of money. Watch out. 1 Timothy 6.10 says from Paul to his apprentice Timothy, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So that's not, I don't think that's to say that believers, true believers can lose their salvation because they love money. I think it means that even though you still kind of, you're in, you go to heaven, you miss out on some of the joy and freedom that God wants you to enjoy both here in this life and maybe in the hereafter as well. The more you rely on your own you know, means, the less you rely on the means of God and his grace, all right? Now, I, I once heard a preacher talk about this um, and what happens to churches as they get richer. And I've seen this myself coming from Red Lick, to River Oaks, right, like where, where the story began and where we're going back to this year as we move to the new property and everything. It's like I've seen what happens to churches as they grow wealthier and more comfortable. They start out in their simplicity or let's say their relative poverty. They start out singing songs about heaven. And when I was growing up in Red Lake, all the songs we sang were about heaven. Let's get out of here as soon as possible. I'll fly away, oh glory. Like every Sunday. Couldn't get enough of I'll fly away. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Like this world ain't it for me. There's more that I'm waiting for, that I'm depending on, that I need. Come Lord Jesus is what we sang in Redlick when I was young. It's what poor churches the world over still sing today, by the way, regardless of the language they're singing in. But when churches grow wealthy, when their pastors go to school and get their master's degree and robe up and get them stoles and a nice, nice fancy building and, and everybody's dressed to the nines and we don't want to rock the boat, we stop singing songs like, this world is not my home. And we start singing songs like, this is my father's world. <laughs> And I'm just fine here. So, <laughs> we kind of like it. This world suits us. That's the danger. The wealthier we get, the more comfortable we get, the less we yearn for God's kingdom to come. Why would you need God's kingdom to come if you're just fine living the way you are now? That's the temptation and the the distraction, to say the least, that's not even the word, that's the sinister, slippery slope of wealth and the love of money. And Jesus wanted us to know this. So how do we fight this? We fight this affluence or this proclivity toward affluence with forfeiture. We forfeit. And here's what I mean. We relinquish the things of this earth 
that satisfy for a moment in favor of the things of heaven that satisfy forever. And Jesus put it this way. This is sort of a, a reversal, but he said in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? In other words, you can flip that around and say, what if we forfeit the whole world and gain everything the Lord wants to bless us with spiritually and gain our soul by forfeiting the things of this world? What if instead of being owned by our money and our love of money, we owned our money and invested it in the kingdom of God, not in the local church necessarily? I'm here if you need me. That's not what this sermon's about. It's about you and your money and your soul and your eternity. And this is life or death for Jesus. And I once had someone tell me, and I've never forgotten it, Eric, your job as a pastor is not to get famous or to be known or to be a name. The only name that matters to you is Jesus. He said, preach the gospel and then die and be forgotten. And of course, implied in that is like die and be forgotten, but be in heaven with Jesus, right? Be forgotten by the world. And some of us, I think, need to hear a different variation on that same tune which is give your money away. Die poor. Plan now to divest from this game we're playing of nicer cars and better vacations and bigger homes and nicer neighborhoods. Divest. Maybe it doesn't happen overnight. Maybe it's a plan that's even into your will. But divest from the game. Even the game that says the best thing to do for your kids and grandkids is to leave them all this money. You could even justify yourself before God. I didn't spend it all on myself. I left it all to my kids and grandkids because that's how much I love them. Maybe if your aim is to make your kids and grandkids generation into the softest generation of your family tree, that would be what love looks like. But how many people do we know that have been ruined by this overprotectiveness of like passing on more money than anyone knows what to do with from one generation to, your, to the next? Make a plan now to invest in God's kingdom. Let that be your legacy and leave no other name behind but that of Jesus. This is, I think this is the closest thing I can come up with to a financial plan from Jesus. As hard as it may be, as much of a game changer as it is, I think that's just the truth. Second, Jesus comes after our indulgence, our indulgence. This is when he says, woe to you who are well fed. Hey, this is Houston, restaurant capital of the world. What's wrong with being well fed? I'm constantly well fed. I honestly don't remember the last time I was hungry, <laughs> like really hungry, because there's always food around. There's always more than enough food, water, other kinds of drinks, right? You know, follow me? Other kinds of, of physical pleasures, you know, all the other kinds of ways to be comfortable. There's all kinds of ways to indulge yourself. There's no shortage. And so what this means is that if you're ever going to know hunger, and if you're ever going to experience what it's like to go without, it must be self-imposed. The only way you will ever know abstinence and what that can bring to your soul, and I'm not just talking about sexual abstinence, from food even, is, is by self-discipline and self-denial. Jesus said that in Matthew 16, 24, to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. 
doesn't just say must be denied by the world, but deny themselves something and take up their cross and then follow me. So to avoid this trap of indulgence, what we do is we fast. Self-imposed abstinence of food or drink or, or any kind of pleasure is fasting. Fasting is a long lost art in the church today. I don't know what happened. It's all over the Bible. Like you can't avoid it in the Bible, but we don't really talk about it or do it much anymore unless you're like on some fad diet and you're like, I'm intermittent fasting. It's like nothing to do with the Bible or whatever. It's not what I'm talking about. Talking about like a spiritual discipline of self-denial for a, a defined period of time, you abstain from eating food or you abstain from certain foods or you abstain from coffee, for example. I know, God forbid. Or you abstain from other kinds of drinks or you abstain from sexual activity if you're married or you abstain from dating if you're single for a period of time. So you remember what it's like to go without and to be desperate for God again, to rely on him again, to know him in such an intimate way, like maybe you did when you first came to faith and you wanted nothing more than you wanted him. But then you started wanting other things a little bit more and a little bit more. And one day you maybe started wanting other things more than you want him. It's natural progression of things, right? But if you're ever going to break that cycle, it's going to mean a regular regimen of fasting. And I can't uh, encourage that enough to be fully dependent on God. Third, Jesus comes after our indifference, our affluence. Um, he comes after our indulgence and he comes after our in indifference. He says, woe to you who laugh now. That's weird. I like to laugh, I like comedy. I like to just relax with friends. Like, is that what he's talking about? It's like, it's bad to laugh. I don't think so, because he's also just said, woe to you who weep now. So there are people present weeping. And apparently there were others present laughing, maybe mocking Jesus, because maybe there were some there listening to him who were not in his camp yet, and maybe this was a shot across the bow at them, or maybe this was a wake-up call even to Christians who have grown weary of weeping. And I know many Christians, myself included at times, who grow weary of bad news and, and trauma and uh, disasters a, a while ago, like after Harvey and everything, everybody in Houston was talking about disaster fatigue. I think sometimes we're just too tired to cry. And we don't even know what it is to feel anymore. We don't know what to do with our feelings. And this isn't just men. I think it's especially men, but it's women too. I think in this world where bad news fills our news feeds all the time, how do you feel the pain that should come along with every story? Like if... If you watched the video they released of that young man, Tyree, on Friday night, and you weren't able to weep, if you weren't moved by that video, or if you didn't, oh, this is rough. If you, if you could have watched and didn't want to be bothered. I know we don't always want to absorb the whole world's pain and the internet makes that possible and we ought to wash our boundaries. I get it. I'm not condemning you if that's kind of where your heart's at. Maybe it was too much for you. It's one example. I'm just saying, if you haven't cried in a while, check your heart. Because the world is broken enough to merit a tear or two. And if you have lost touch with that part of yourself, ask God to renew your heart. 
He's in the heart renewal business. The Bible has a a, a term for this state of being, by the way, it's hard-hearted. Hard-heartedness or cynicism that sets in when we just basically don't really think anything matters. If I pray or if I don't pray, the same outcome is going to happen. If I help this person or if I don't, the same thing's going to happen. If I give that person money, they're just going to go spend it at the liquor store. If I, you know, the cynicism that sets in when the world wears us down, that's hard-heartedness. Pray the prayer of David from Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew my heart. Help me to feel again. So the way we combat this uh, indifference is by learning to feel once more. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. This is what it means to be faithful. It's not sympathy or even empathy. It's compassion. It's to hurt with. That's what compassion means, to hurt with those who hurt. And that's what it means to have a godly heart. Fourth, and finally, Jesus addresses our audience. Our audience So after talking about our indifference and our indulgence and our affluence, he talks about our audience. In other words, he asks us in no uncertain terms, who are you living for? That's what he's addressing when he says, woe to you when everyone likes you, when everyone says the nicest things about you, because you're just the nicest guy. Like, you don't offend anyone. You give the shirt off your back, someone in need. Like, you're you're always up for a good time, like... Watch out, Jesus says, when no one has a negative word to say about you on his account, all right? So this begs the question day to day, who are we living for and trying to impress? I think most of us, if we're honest, would say we at times live for man. Some of you would even say you live for men or for women or for, you know, a significant other or for your boss, investors, fans online or followers on social media, for your friends maybe. Who are we living for? Truth is, when you're walking in faith with Jesus, you should just live for an audience of one. You live for him and you want to please him and pleasing no one else really matters but that's tough, right? One of the first things people told me about Houston, Texas, when I moved here in 2014, they said, Eric, you always got to be careful in this town because it's a small town. I'm like, there's like, there's like 7 million people here legally. Like who knows like how many people total. It's like a, we're near the border. It's like got a lot of people here that are off the books, like maybe 8 million people in Houston and around Houston, small town. They were like, oh, what I'm saying is your reputation is everything here. If you earn a bad reputation, you'll be an outcast. Okay? So everybody watches their step here. Everybody tries to please man here for the purposes of salvaging your reputation. You don't want anybody saying anything bad about you. The only problem with that, of course, is that if you're faithful to Jesus, you will have thoughts, beliefs, opinions, ideas, and you will take action in ways that are disagreeable to the world. You won't find it possible to be friends with the world in the way that you were in the past. The more you fall in love with Jesus, you'll see 
injustice happening. You'll see evil happening, and you will not be able to be quiet about it. And, and this, is, this is how the, the Bible puts it. Jesus' brother James in James 4, 4 said, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? And therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And there it is. And so you can be friends with God or you can be friends with the world, but if you try to be friends with both, you'll get neither. Wow. So to avoid this uh, trap of living for the wrong audience, we must fight. And by fight, I mean we must fight the temptation to fit in and reckon with the reality that living for Jesus will eventually ruin your reputation in the eyes of the world. And that will be increasingly the case as the world continues to grow more secular and less Christian to stand up for the truth of Jesus will make you an outcast in many circles. Young people, listen to me. I'm telling you, you especially, you need to know this. We all get to make our choice. But I think all of this goes beyond just like uh, who we're living for or, or you know, what audience we're, we're living for or what we're living for. It's really about when we're living for. Are we living for the now and comfort now or are we living for eternity? Did you hear it in Jesus' teaching when he said, blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. For you will be, for you will be, right? So it's about when you're living for and I found this, I came across this beautiful explanation or this quote of how people following Jesus need to live for eternity. And this is from A.W. Tozer. A little long, and so hang in there with me and this is the end, all right? So he says, we who follow Christ are men and women of eternity. We must put no confidence in the passing scenes of the disappearing world. We must resist every attempt of Satan to palm off upon us the values that belong to mortality. Nothing less than forever is long enough for us. We view with amused sadness the frenetic scramble of the world to gain a brief moment in the sun. The book of the year, or the book of the month, for instance, has a strange sound to one who has dwelt with God and taken his values from the ancient of days. The man of the year cannot impress those men and those women who, there we go, are making their plans for that long eternity when days and years have passed away and time is no more. The church must claim again her ancient dowry of everlastingness. She must begin again to deal with the ages and millennia rather than with days and years. She must, here it is, she, this is for preachers, she must not count numbers, but test foundations. She must work for permanence rather than appearance. Her children must seek those enduring things that have been touched with immortality. The shallow brook of popular religion chatters on its nervous way and thinks the ocean too quiet and too dull because it lies deep in its mighty bed and is unaffected. By the latest shower. I want to write like that when I grow up. <laughs> Two questions for you. The first is obvious. Do you want to be rich and well-fed and happy and popular? 
Of course you do, let's be honest. But do you want to be rich and well-fed and happy and popular more than you want to love Jesus? I hope not. To be faithful to Jesus isn't easy, but it's the only way to salvation and to real, lasting joy. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm just going to offer you this short prayer in concert with uh, everything we've said today and what you've afflicted me about this week. Two lines, Lord. In our affliction, comfort us. But in our comfort, Lord, afflict us. In my affliction, comfort me. But in my comfort, afflict me. Amen.